Now, if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your device, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Take out your sermon outline, which you may have received as you enter the worship center. And uh, I want to begin by drawing your attention to a chart which provides us with some rather sobering information. Here it is. First of all, you notice at the top it states that each month, each month, 322 Christians on average are killed for their faith. Each month. Each month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. Each month, 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians in the form of beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, forced marriages, just because they are followers of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Now notice this map. It's difficult to probably understand what this is all about because of its small size, but the dark countries, 60 of them around the world, are persecuting Christians every single day. So believers in these countries are experiencing discrimination in employment, education, and housing as a daily reality just because they are followers of Jesus Christ. One website on the persecuted church mentions that there were more martyrs for Jesus in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. So just decide you're going to take your faith seriously and represent Jesus Christ in every area of your life, and some people are not going to be very happy with your decision. You just decide you're going to seek to live out the various beatitudes that we've been talking about over the last couple of months, and you can be certain that some people will not be happy with that choice. So today we come to the eighth and final beatitude, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. Let's stand together for the public reading of God's truth. Listen as I read the Word of God, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 10. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. Let me continue my introduction by sharing with you some general observations about these three verses. Number one, Jesus gives more space to this beatitude than any of the others. And this is the only one in which he personalizes things. The only time we have the personal pronoun used you. So he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Here's another observation. Since all the Beatitudes describe what every single Christian is intended to be, we may conclude that this whole condition of being despised and rejected and mocked and insulted, all of these different things, is as much 
a characteristic of an authentic Christian as, say, being meek or a peacemaker or any of the other Beatitudes that we've been considering throughout this series. Here's another observation. As we learned last week, as Pastor Amy was uh, speaking to us on the seventh Beatitude, we're called to be peacemakers. But clearly, as we move on to this eighth Beatitude, it becomes apparent that not all of our efforts to make peace are going to be successful. Some people, in spite of our efforts, are going to be in opposition uh, toward us. One other observation. Did you notice in the reading that Jesus did not say if you are persecuted or if you are insulted, but rather when? When that happens, indicating certainly then that if you're a Christian, some harassment for your faith is inevitable. And so this last beatitude functions as both a wake-up call to us who are Christ followers to recognize that some form of opposition is inevitable, but at the same time it becomes an encouragement as to how to hope, uh, cope rather with respect to it. Now here Jesus draws our attention to three major themes. He emphasizes what is the reason for this persecution. He gives us some examples as to how it is expressed and he even indicates how we're to respond to it. So those are the three areas we're gonna be exploring uh, throughout the teaching time this morning. First of all then, what is the reason for this persecution? Well, let me begin with some negatives. So these are not the reasons, all right? First of all, the persecution to which Jesus refers is not racial or sexual harassment. As difficulty, as difficult, excuse me, and as, as uh, terrible as those experiences certainly can be. Certainly as believers, we are called upon to respond to all forms of injustice in our broken world. Certainly then including expressions of uh, racial strife or for that matter, sexual harassment in the workplace or in any other environment. But that's not the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. Neither is he talking about being persecuted for being a nuisance you know, argumentative, irritable. And let's face it, Christians at times have been all of those things. Sometimes believers, in an effort to share their faith with those in their sphere of, an, of influence, will get argumentative, will get kind of big and tough and seek to blow people away by their argumentation. And then when that individual turns against them, they may want to conclude, see, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, you're just being persecuted for being weird, you know, or irritating, or argumentative, or whatever. No, that's not it. And neither is Jesus talking about suffering for some conservative or liberal political agenda. So if you're insulted because of your Democratic or Republican platform convictions, or because of your support of a particular candidate, or because of how other issues in our world have been politicized like masking or vaccinations or whatever, please don't conclude that is because it's a faith issue, okay? That's not the reason. So what then is the reason that Jesus gives for this persecution? He gives us his answer in one word. Here it is. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at a beatitude that said, happy or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, same word. And we discovered on that occasion that this word righteousness refers to two things. It refers to our being right, being right with others, primarily being right with God, but it also includes doing right in terms of how God defines what rightness is all about. So being right, doing right, is what this term righteousness means. Or yet another way of describing it is to say that Jesus here is talking about Christians who are seeking just to live out all of the Beatitudes. You know, we start by being poor in spirit. We're aware of our bankruptcy, our poverty, before a holy God. And that causes us, secondly, to grieve or mourn our sinfulness. That makes us meek or humble in our dealings with others. We hunger and thirst for more of God in our lives. We're seeking to be merciful, kind, and compassionate in our dealings with one another, as well as seeking to be pure in heart, that is, people marked by integrity and peacemakers. So we're just seeking to live out all of that, or yet another way is to say, it, we're being persecuted for being like Jesus Christ himself. Now, over the centuries, whenever believers have sought to take their faith seriously, it's inevitably led to all kinds of challenges. Let me give you some examples. You know, it would be a common thing for a non-Christian neighbor or an employer to invite a Christian out for a meal. But the restaurants in those days were inside pagan temples. And to have a meal in a pagan temple means, would mean that you were about to eat meat that had recently been offered as a sacrifice of worship to some pagan deity. And uh, just before the meal would be served, there would be the lifting up of the goblet of wine and kind of a toast made in honor of that particular deity. And so many Christians, of course, concluded they could not in good conscience participate. And so the non-Christians who were inviting believers to such things would be considering the Christian to be antisocial just because they refused that dinner invitation. School teachers in the Roman world had it tough when they became Christians. Why? Because the entire educational system was built on a philosophy of promoting the heathenism of the empire. And consequently, textbooks, whatever they may have looked like in the ancient world, told all of the stories about the gods and ancient legends and principles or values involved in serving those ancient deities. And so Christian teachers realized that they would have to resign from their positions. That made things difficult, as you can imagine. And then there was the rampant sexual immorality that was taken for granted because of unwanted pregnancies. Abortion was a huge issue in the ancient world. And with 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors being practicing homosexuals, that lifestyle was widespread as, as well. Just to give you a single example, Nero on one occasion married a man, called the man his wife, later on married a child. A child, nine, 10 years of age, said that the child was his husband. So that's the kind of society in which Christianity sought to spread and impact the entire empire. 
So when men and women came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, things changed. I mean, they became committed to a lifestyle of chastity before marriage and sexual fidelity within marriage. Men back in those days typically got married for the purpose of having kids, but they would go and sleep with a temple prostitute for purposes of sexual gratification. But now they began to embrace Christ and so that standard began to change. Consequently, believers were misunderstood and they were scorned. Believers were viewed as prudes by those who consider themselves to be so sexually liberated. And then being a Christian also presented difficulties when it came to the employment world. Essentially all kinds of jobs were connected with being a member of a guild or a trade union. And the difficulty with that, of course, was that throughout the year there will be seasonal events held at the temple where you would be expected to participate, to eat food, sacrifice to an idol, and sleep with a temple prostitute. That's how people worshiped in the temples. So what was a Christian supposed to do? On one occasion, a believer came to uh, the second century Christian leader Tertullian to say, Tertullian, I've become, I've become a Christian. And I'm convinced that my job does not line up with the Bible. What am I supposed to do? He said, I must live. To which Tertullian responded by saying, must you? Must you? Yeah. The point being that what was true then has been true for Christians in every single age. It was righteousness, being like Jesus Christ, that made these believers different in the early centuries, and it's righteousness, being like Jesus, that makes Christians different today. So Christians today will have a different sexual morality compared to non-Christians. As Christians, we recognize that the Bible teaches that all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage is inappropriate. It's sinful. So a Christian will not consider shacking up with a boy or girlfriend because of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. They'll want to promote chastity and sexual purity on every level because of our loyalty to our Savior. And uh, so you just ask a high school student today, for example, to tell her peers, I'm a Christian and I intend to be a virgin until I get married. And in many cases that will be met with scorn and peer disapproval, and that hurts. Then Christians talk differently. For example, when there's the slightest surprise today, it's common to hear people take God's name in vain, OMG or what the H, or the latest phrase that you may have heard of, let's go Brandon as a substitute for cursing out with the F word, the current president. And so Christians speak differently. And it causes people to wonder why the speech of the righteous is so different compared to others. And then Christians today are also distinguished by the way that they work. You know, things like refusing to lie to potential customers about delivery dates, or for that matter, about product potential, or just wanting to be courteous and respectful to others, and working toward the abolishment of racial and gender discrimination. These are things that are very important to Christians to the point where it may cost them 
advancement opportunities or worse in their environment of work. So in other words, the difference between Christians today and a non-Christian world continues to be the same based on righteousness. The Apostle Peter in one place describes the attitudes or response of non-Christians toward the behavior of Christians. I find this fascinating. This is what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. In the past, you wasted too much time doing what non-believers enjoy. You were guilty of sexual sins, evil desires, drunkenness, wild and drunken parties, and hateful idol worship. Non-believers think it is strange that you do not do the many wild and wasteful things they do, so they insult you. People don't like others to be different, you know? There's all of this pressure to conform, to be like everybody else and what we believe and what we value and the way we dress, how we behave. Every parent of a grade school child is familiar with this because often the child will come home and say, Mom, Dad, everybody is doing this. This is what we're, where we're all going. This is how we're all behaving. These are the kinds of things we, we say to one another. It's normal, you know? And so the child longs for acceptance and uh, just wants to conform. And of course, as adults, we're not a whole lot better. The pressure to be like everybody else oftentimes controls what we buy, our values, how we act. And so when Christians are different, others turn against them in persecution. It's like what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at this verse. He says, everyone, so there are no exceptions here. Doesn't matter how old or young you are, level of education, what you do for a job, what community you live in. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's because Christians are different, because we're seeking to be like Jesus in every dimension of life. Okay, if that's the reason for the persecution, how is it expressed? Well, Jesus gives us three examples, and that's surely all that he means. They're examples, illustrations. He mentions insults, blessed are you when people insult you. That's getting attacked verbally. You know, derogatory things, for example, said against you to discredit you. He mentions persecution. In fact, he uses the term or one form of it three times, refers to physical mistreatment, abuse, harassment. He also mentions lying or slander. Blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So they insult you, they mistreat you, they may say things against you through social media, all kinds of things. It's interesting in the early church how these insults and persecutions and falsehoods were expressed. For example, when believers celebrated communion, do you know that they were often accused of cannibalism? Say, what? <laughs> How could that be? Well, these Christians were talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of some guy from Nazareth named Jesus. So they were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality? Christians? How could that be? Well. 
It seems that word got out that Christians exchanged what was called the kiss of peace. You know, greet one another with a holy kiss, the Bible says, and they were doing that, and they referred to each other as brother and sister. And so people outside the faith were accusing Christians of being incestuous and even homosexual. They were also accused of being unpatriotic. They couldn't serve in the military, perhaps in some cases because of pacifism, but more than likely because they refused to take a vow. They refused to pledge allegiance to Caesar as Lord, saying, we have one Lord, and that Lord is Jesus Christ. So because of that, they were viewed as unpatriotic. And it got to the point where they were even accused of being atheists. Atheists? Yeah. Christians accused of atheism? Yeah. Why? Well, the Romans said, we have our gods. Here they are right over here. You can see them on the shelf. You Christians, we can't see your gods, so evidently you're a bunch of atheists. And so it got to the point when the Roman army started losing battles, when there were a bunch of natural disasters that were occurring throughout the empire. It was said that was the wrath of the gods because people were tolerating these atheists in their midst who call themselves Christians. So what started out to be rather modest expressions of persecution began to increase until Christians began losing their jobs because of their faith. But it got worse. Look at how the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 describes it. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. A few years ago, Jonathan Cho, who's an expert on the condition of the church in the country of China, was being interviewed regarding the state of the church in that country. He explained that Christians there have experienced all of the horrors that were true of Christians back in the early centuries of the church. But he went on to say that these believers in China have concluded that that's proof that they are authentic Christians. When one suffers for Jesus Christ, that's evidence of the reality of their faith. Well, that last comment took the interviewer back. And the interviewer responded by saying, well, I mean, if that's true, there probably aren't very many Christians in America. To which Cho responded by saying this, you know, there are other ways of suffering. Chinese Christians understand that American Christians often suffer in different ways, especially within their families. He added, your suffering is often in terms of divorces, rebellious kids, alienated parents, troubled marriages. I mean, I doubt that there's a single person here today who's been tortured for your faith. We're not at risk of here in Minneapolis of becoming martyrs, but I know believers who have lost their jobs and were passed over for a promotion because of their following of Christ in the workplace. Maybe some of you have been insulted to your faces. Maybe others here have had accusations made behind your backs. I mean, these things hurt. Maybe others of you have been forced to accept a divorce you didn't want, or you know, you've had a husband, a wife, a 
parent, a child, or some other relative turn against you because of righteousness, because of being like Jesus. So, what should be our response? How do we cope? Well, look at what Jesus says again in verse 12. Remember, we've been pointing out that each of these Beatitudes is kind of countercultural. Well, look at this statement. So here's, he's describing all of this suffering, insults, everything else. And now he says, rejoice and be glad. Are you kidding me? Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think you have to probably be a Christian to understand the logic of what Jesus is saying at this point. But he draws our attention to three great reasons why we can rejoice and be glad. What are the reasons? Well, first, we may rejoice because such treatment proves that we really are Christians. The Apostle Peter, who died a martyr's death, as did most of the apostles, writes this in 1 Peter 4. Count it a blessing when you suffer for being a Christian. This shows that God's glorious spirit is with you. You're experiencing almost this kind of God-given supernatural joy that comes to those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake because they sense in their mistreatment a oneness with him. And that joy is greater certainly than the most horrible pain one could possibly experience in this life. And so if you've known examples in your own life of some form of persecution by, you know, taking an honest sta uh, stand at work or refusing to compromise on quality or service or remaining pure when friends and acquaintances are most impure by sharing your faith, whatever form that it's taken, you can rejoice because it reveals your oneness with Jesus Christ. Secondly, we may rejoice because we're going to receive a great reward. Jesus puts it like this. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Let me illustrate what I think Jesus is going with this. Uh, imagine a child who tells the parent, I don't want to go to school. And the child is complaining, is weeping about it, then the parent probes a bit and discovers it's not so much going to school as it is riding on the bus to get there, the school bus, because of some bully on board who makes life miserable for this child. Finally, after listening to the child out, the parent responds by saying, honey, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go to school. But just remember this, I love you very much. And I'll tell you what, end of the day, I'll be there to pick you up after school, and you and I are going to go and do something very special. I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus is getting at here with regard to this topic of our being persecuted. It's as if he's saying in the midst of all of the difficulties, just remember, I love you very much. And I'll tell you what, the end of the day, when you're with me, we're going to do something very special. Great is going to be your reward. Now, the scriptures in the New Testament, unfortunately, don't really say a whole lot about the nature of this reward, but it certainly suggests it's going to be better than we can ever imagine that the put-downs you've endured at school or the harassment in your workplace or 
difficulties in family life will all have been worth it for the privilege of sharing in his glory. So that's another reason. One more is given in our text, and that is we may rejoice because we're in great company. Rejoice and be glad for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sometime, reread a read or reread in some cases, I guess, the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is often called God's Hall of Fame. It lists the, the names and accomplishments of so many people in the days of the Old Testament. And then the author says this, some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world is not worthy of them. So Jesus is saying, we belong to a great body of people. The Isaiahs and Jeremiahs and John the Baptist and all the others, a great and honorable company. So those are the reasons why we can rejoice. So let me end the teaching time by asking you to reflect on two questions. Here's the first. What is your faith costing you? What is your faith costing you? Does anybody outside this room even know that you're a Christ follower? So if you got arrested, charged with being a Christian, would there be any evidence to convict you? What is your faith costing you? You know, if you decide to avoid persecution, really isn't all that difficult. A couple ways you can do that. One certainly is you know, just cut yourself off from all non-Christians. Just attend a church that's 100% Christian, socialize with Christians, exercise with Christians, join book clubs with Christians, golf with Christians, live in a Christian cocoon, and you will avoid non-Christians and thus avoid persecution. The other way is to simply immerse yourself in the values of our culture. You know, approve of the world's morals. Laugh at its humor, immerse yourself in its values, smile when God gets mocked. Don't share your faith, and you'll never be persecuted for being a Christian. So what will it be for you? Are you more interested in staying faithful to Jesus Christ or living for personal comfort? What is your faith costing you? My other question is this, are you ready today by God's grace to commit yourself to honoring Jesus in every area of your life? After all, Jesus was ridiculed for you. He was mocked for you. He was scorned for you, rejected for you, beaten, crucified for you. So what's the implication? 1 Peter 2, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Today, now, commit yourself to honoring Jesus in all that you do, no matter the cost, and hear him say to you, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the reminder that joy comes not from pleasures or popularity or possessions, but from honoring and loving you and serving you and living for your glory. So enable us to do that. Make us strong that so we're never ashamed of you. And may we be willing to face mistreatment in order to honor you. Give us courage, give us faith to face whatever challenges come our way in this new week and rejoice in the knowledge that we really are yours now and forever through Jesus Christ, amen.